You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Welcome. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name's Alan. I'm one of the leaders here uh, on the staff team. So I ended up slightly hoarse. After, after that time of worship, um, and very, very glad for the 15 minutes interval to, uh, to compose myself. <laughs> um, I think I was pretty good, good to sob my way through my preach, um, which might still happen. Um, there we go. Please, nobody film it. That'd be very embarrassing. Uh, I'm going to begin by uh, reading the text that we, uh, that we ended with last week, and then... Uh, so a few things, then we'll move on through the story, okay? It will all become clear. If you do have a Bible or a device or something with the Scriptures, um, please have it ready at 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's in the Old Testament, in case you're wondering. Um, and we will, you'll be able to follow along, okay? Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See how your brothers fare and bring some token from them. David rose early in the morning, left someone in charge of the sheep, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So this is the text that we read and unpacked last week. We've been working through 1 Samuel 17 as a chapter, uh, well, I have at least in my preaching this term, And uh, last week we got stuck into the way that David was portrayed in these verses. David is a young man who has been chosen by God, a man whom God has marked out himself as a man after God's heart. And we saw through this story, we saw David doing the small and seemingly insignificant things well. We took note that he was a man who was a man of action. He wasn't frozen in overthinking or fruitless analyzing. We heard him as he uttered his first words in the story and noted that his words put the identity of God and the identity of Israel as the people of God back on the table. And as I said last week, these things begin to show us what it was that God saw in David when he designated him a man after God's own heart, right? The story of David in 1 Samuel has this thing, he's a man after my own heart. And as you watch David and observe him, you begin to learn just what it is that for God makes him a man after his own heart. But there's more than that. Because this story, like all the scriptures, search, probe, and preach to us as well about our hearts. They're not simply there as information to be explored in an isolated manner and thought, well, that's interesting. 
They speak to us. And David functions very much as an example of a man after God's own heart. It's quite popular in certain brands of evangelical Christianity to say, well, David really isn't an example for us. The point is that the, the God fights your battles, and it's not really about being like David at all, except that the whole way the text is presented is that this is how you're supposed to be. This is, what you're, this is how you become a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart. This is what it means to be faithful, to be a lover of God, and things like that. So this, this text probes our deepest beliefs and motives and actions. Uh, you might recall that uh, I mentioned last week as well that some postmodern, or however you want to construe postmodernism, some postmodern interpreters of this story make a, take a very different tack. They see David as being basically self-serving, a bit of an ambitious little oik, an upstart, who, see, who hears about the reward that's being gossiped amongst the men, like what will be done for the person who dispatches the giant, and basically he sees sex, money, and like power, and thinks, wow. And that's how the suspicious uh, reader, the suspicious interpreter views it. Ah, yeah, look here, this is just there's a power play going on, and David's right in the very middle of it all. Now, one of the things that I really love and enjoy about Scripture is the way that it's always ahead of you. It's always a couple of steps, at least, ahead, ready to leap out, as it were, and go, aha, gotcha, in your unguarded moments, or just as you make a judgment about something, there's a surprise around the corner. You see, hot on the heels of David's first words in this chapter come the first words of his biggest brother, Eliab. And it seems beautifully ironic to me that the cynical and suspicious interpreters of David very quickly bump into David's biggest brother, Eliab, immediately after they have made their moves regarding David. Let's read about Eliab now. His eldest brother, Eliab, heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? It was only a question. He turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Sibling rivalry. David and Eliab. It's never pretty, is it? But in and amongst the ugliness and the nastiness, there, there are lighter moments. Uh, if not, sometimes comedy gold. Uh, if you want a contemporary example of sibling rivalry, look no further than the Gallagher brothers. Even this week, Liam Gallagher, the younger of the two, called Noel, who's the one on the, on the right there, if you don't know, an angry squirt and a sad little dwarf. Brilliant. Because Noel, big, nasty, mean brother who wrote most of the songs, has blocked Liam from performing Oasis songs at, is it Nebworth or something, I think, or some big thing. I mean, it's, it's tragic, isn't it? But come on, Liam, you've got to roll with it. You see what I did there? P- 
people of a certain age are going, oh. Other people are going, what? <laughs> Beth doesn't get it. Okay. It's, it's in the fields of barley. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> so, various awful in-jokes. You'll have to ask Beth all about it later on. Okay, sibling rivalry. Now, we just read in 1 Samuel that David's brother Eliab overhears David speaking to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now, remember that first words in Bible narratives are really important. The first words that characters speak uh, set up the character in important ways. We've heard David's first words, and they were full of truth, theological reality, the reality of the people of God, a sense of indignance that, that, that what? This uncircumcised Philistines come up, defy what? How can he defy the armies of the people of God? That's David's first words. But Eliab's first words are angry words. He's angry with David, and his words uttered in anger are ugly. I want to suggest that Eliab does three things with his words. I'm going to interpret them in a particular way. And the first is this, that Eliab questions David's integrity. (laughs) With whom have you left those few sheep? It's questioning David's integrity. We may even perhaps hear Eliab questioning David's right to be there, belittling his youngest brother's responsibilities as a shepherd. But primarily, I think it is this, a questioning of his integrity. You see, implicit in the question, with whom have you left those few sheep, is a subtle accusation. You've just dropped your responsibilities and run after something more exciting. You've left them. They're your job. It's a rubbish job, but you left them nonetheless. You've bombed it off down to the front line. Who did you leave those few sheep with? It was an undermining of David and his integrity. But Eliab is wrong. He's wrong, wrong, wrong. Because anybody who has read the story knows that David was there because he was being obedient to their dad, Jesse. Jesse says, take those wheels of brie, (laughs) take them down to the front line with a few baguettes and, you know, a bottle of Fanta. go Go and give them to your brothers and bring some word back about how they are doing. David is there to serve Eliab. Note that. David is there to serve Eliab. But his brother Eliab can only question his little brother's integrity. The next thing is that Eliab suspects David of impure motives. Why have you come down? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Ouch! Ouch, 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 ouch. If you spend um, a decade plus in Christian leadership, you may hear things similar to this. Not often, but occasionally. And I can tell you, ouch! It hurts. God calls you to serve the people. Sometimes the people, the sheep that you're called to serve, bite. The sheep have teeth. Sometimes, not always, but Eliab suspects David of impure motives. David is only there to serve, remember. 
And yet here's his brother throwing shade on him, calling him presumptuous, evil in heart. Perhaps Eliab thinks that David is just trying to cash in on the reward that the men are gossiping about. But again, he's wrong, because David is only there because he's responded obediently and faithfully to what Jesse has asked him to do. The third thing we might say we see is Eliab falsely accusing David. I know the evil of your heart. You have just come down to see the battle. Eliab thinks that little brother David is only interested in observing the soon-to-happen slaughter. He assumes that David has no intention of joining in. David's just there to get some kind of frisson, a cheap thrill, a little bit of cheap entertainment from watching the bloodshed unfolding before him. Even on a surface level, it's not nice, is it? But it goes far deeper. This is the surface level, but we have to understand some other things that help us to understand more of what is happening in Eliab's speech and what it actually shows. To really get to grips with what Eliab is saying and why, then we have to remind ourselves that we have met Eliab once before in this story, not in chapter 17, but we met Eliab back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel when the prophet Samuel arrived at Jesse's house in obedience to God to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king. Just in case you've forgotten, we'll look at the text together. When Samuel came, or when the, when the sons of Jesse came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Da, da, da. <laughs> Samuel thinks this must be the guy. He looks impressive. God says, don't you dare, because I see what you can't see. We never, ever, 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 ever hear from God then what it is about Eliab that causes him to reject Eliab. All we know is that God says, no, don't look at his heart. I look at the heart. I've rejected him. And that's it. That's how it's left at the time. There's something invisible to the human eye that the divine eye searches out and sees, and we're left in the dark about it. Until now, that is, We've learnt by observing David's actions and listening to his words about what it is in David that God sees that marks him out as a man after his own heart. And I want to suggest to you this morning that what we have just heard Eliab say tells us what it is about Eliab that meant God rejected Eliab. Eliab questions God's anointed 
falsely accuses him, tries to undermine his integrity, belittles him. It's an ugly scene. We won't ever know what else was said on the day when Samuel came to Jesse's house and anointed David, but we do know that Eliab was rejected by God and David chosen in the presence of all the brothers, right? It's a family affair. That must have stung for a big brother, especially a tall and impressive big brother. Here comes the firstborn. It's Eliab. (laughs) And the prophet says, nope rejected him five more brothers roll through no 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 any more well there's the, there's the runt of the pack but he's with the sheep call him this is the one Doosh, anointing bam holy spirit power that's got to burn when you're the big tall strong military older brother it all happened right up and before Eliab's face. David was rejected by his family, but he was chosen by God. Eliab and his brothers looked good to the human eye, but God saw something that caused him to reject them. Now, I don't expect you to remember every single detail of every single sermon that I've ever preached, well, apart from you, um, and I will quiz you later. Um, In fact, it's not the point. It's not the point. You're not supposed to remember every detail of every sermon. The point is that you encounter God through his word, and it changes you. And you might remember that, but you might not remember what point two, sub point three was, like from six years ago. Hopefully not anyway. That'd be a little bit weird. Have you seen the movie Rain Man? (laughs) Um, I don't expect you to remember every detail. But... In the first five minutes of the very first sermon that I preached to you from this series in 1 Samuel 17, I pointed out to you that the storyteller sets out the scene, the geographical scene, in two different ways. One was like this panoramic view with one army here and one army there, and then the other was like from up above, like a kind of, I don't know, a God's eye, this wouldn't be a God's eye view, would it? Like a, a God's eye view looking down, seeing everything from above, but then also seeing the panoramic view. And the point was, if you remember, if you don't remember, I'm telling you now, the point is there's different ways of seeing what's happening in this story. And seeing and perceiving is a really, really important part of the story. Speaking is as well. But seeing gets mentioned a lot. If you like, later on, if you want to ask me privately, I can show you all the ways in which sight and seeing function from chapter 16 right the way through chapter 17. There are perspectives on display. And the point is that it's meant to tease out of us, what do you see? What is it that you are able to perceive? Today, as we explore Eliab and his words, we're being exposed to something. And that something is a tragic reality. The tragic reality that some people just cannot see or understand or discern the work of God as it unfolds right in front of their very face. They can't see. They don't get it. They don't know. David was anointed ruler of Israel by the prophet. 
in the presence of his brothers. His brothers knew. They saw. They experienced the unfolding, yet they can't see. They can't see. And Eliab can't see because his heart is not right. Say it again. Eliab fails to see because his heart is not right. His heart is angry and cynical and suspicious. He is, on one level, as close as you could possibly be to the unfolding story of God, but he's blind to it. And so I want to ask you, and me, are you an Eliab, or are you a David? Just let that hang heavily and awkwardly in the air for a few moments, shall we? Are you an Eliab, or an Eliab, or a David? It's a question for you if you would call yourself a Christian and if you would not call yourself a Christian. If you would not call yourself a Christian, then the question that God is posing to you today is, can you see? God takes no delight in people who stumble around in darkness. He doesn't try and make it difficult for people. But perhaps you're here, you're looking in at church, you're thinking, I don't know, what do I, what do I make of all this? Well, God's asking you, can you see? Can you see? And can you? It's not a rhetorical question. Can you see? Are you seeing something of the reality of God, the presence of Jesus? We've sung of him. We've tasted of him with our lips. We've experienced him in hands and eyes and faces as we've eaten and drunk and shared together. We've heard his voice as he spoke to us, ministered to us in song and music. He speaks to you now through the word that witnesses to him. Can you see? If you would call yourself a Christian today, the question is, can you still see? To be a Christian at all requires God opening your eyes and opening your heart. It's not an intellectual thing. I sat and I worked it out until I realized that I think I can probably just about think this out and then, I'm, and then I made a decision. No, that's not how it works. Otherwise, only the smart and the articulate and the clever would ever become Christians, right? No, we know God because God reveals God's self to us. There was a point when suddenly something happened. It clicked. We saw it. We understood our hearts came alive. I, I know him. I believe. God does that. But can you still see? Or have you become angry, suspicious, cynical, accusatory? It can happen. Pete spoke earlier about the multitude of voices in our world. The multitude of cynical, angry, shrill, draw attention to me voices in the world. The empty voices that promise everything but deliver nothing apart from a headache and broken friendships. 
the voices that proclaim a salvation of sorts that you have to earn and work for, and a part and a difference to that beautiful salvation that Lottie sang of. Is your heart hard? Are your eyes misting over? Can you still see? The issue of whether you see the work of God as some kind of human manipulation or something like that is as pertinent today as it has ever been. It was pertinent for the story of David. It was pertinent for Jesus who said that the only unforgivable sin was to be so hard and blind that you attribute the work of God in Jesus to the devil. As the theologian and author Tom Wright says, if you believe in your heart that the doctor with the life-saving medicine is a sadistic murderer, then you will never submit to receiving what he has to give you. Is that how you see it? You're constantly questioning, 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 suspicious, cynical, eh, I don't know. Always here, never understanding. Oh, friends. It's pertinent for you as you listen to God's word preached week in and week out, as you eat and drink around the communion table, as you live out your baptized life with other baptized believers, as you trust the men and women God has given to lead you in this community and work together in humility and unity with them in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It's pertinent. Can you see? Or are you growing blind, believer? Are you a David or are you an Eliab? Jesus, in one of the most unwriggle outable texts in the whole Bible, said, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's no way of getting around that. It's, it's the perfect, like, What's the word I'm looking for? It's the perfect diagnosis of, the, of human life. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because if you say, I'm offended by that, oh no, it can't be true. Nah. <laughs> Busted. Are your words cynical, angry, suspicious, accusatory? Particularly regarding the people of God. I wonder if you're Someone who shows up, calls yourself a Christian, turns up, faithfully present, maybe even attends the, the, the wider community groups that are going on at the moment as we seek to grow and follow Jesus together as a church. Do you attend those that behind the scenes, that what comes out of your mouth is, is anger and suspicion? I think she's just trying to get in power. I, I think she's just trying to do this. I don't like that guy. I think he's murmur, 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 murmur grumble, grumble, grumble. Do we speak like that? Are you an Eliab? Or are you a David? The living God. The armies of the living God. We speak for him and for his people. For what God is doing, not against knocking, biting, nibbling. You know, it's a bold person indeed that speaks out against another person's spouse in the presence of the other person's spouse. 
What guy in their right mind would start laying into another man's wife when they're both standing there? A guy who's a little bit cuckoo, who doesn't mind getting a dig in the gob, probably. (laughs) How much more ought we tread with fear and trembling, as it were, if we choose to speak about Christ's bride, the church, for he is ever-present, and he loves the church. Oh, and he knows the church. Don't be fooled. He knows, he knows the weaknesses, he knows the failings, but he also shed his blood in order to present her to him as a spotless bride, and that's how he sees her. He knows the failings, but he sees her as pure and holy. Listen, you need to agree. You need to agree with Jesus' assessment of the church rather than build your own human assessment based on sociological, selfish motives or reasons. Who are we to disagree with the the church's groom? Who? Do, Do we think we can? Do we think it wise? Do we think that he will not be upset or angered about a people who speak loosely and unfairly and critically of his bride? Oh, no. If I would defend my spouse against an accuser, how much more will the Lord Jesus defend his bride against an accuser? In fact, he does and he has. He's put to death the accuser's lies by dying on the cross. And all things will be under his feet in the end. And then everyone will see, ah, this beautiful spotless bride. The other week... I need to finish. (laughs) Yes, please, please. Uh, The other week, Phil referenced this scripture from Philippians. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. These aren't abstract ideas. Paul's not asking them to reflect on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. (laughs) He's not asking them to to just think about these in in abstract terms. What he means, because Paul is writing to a church that is full of infighting and backbiting and gossiping and murmuring, Euodia and Syntyche, I urge these two women, help them. They're arguing with each other. (laughs) It's all kicking off in Philippi. And Paul has to write and say, look, sort it out. And this is what that applies to. It's It's not just put that on your computer monitor so that you don't look at naked ladies when you're supposed to be writing your thesis. Not me, by the way. <laughs> but still, when you're in community with one another, if you belong to the people of God, this is how you think about one another. And it's really hard because it's really easy to be snarky and critical. And I mean, we're British, for goodness sake, for starters, most of us in the room. We don't find cynicism difficult. It's not kind of cutting against our better nature as English people to be cynical and suspicious. But deeper than that, it's because we're fundamentally, at deepest level, sinners 
Because cynicism and suspicion are things that come in and undermine the integrity and the beauty and the truthfulness and the wonder of God's purposes. They undermine relationship. It's really, it takes effort to do this, to find in people who really do your nutting some of these things. It's really easy to criticize people, really easy. And the papers and the TV and the news, like, makes it super, it makes it all seem, oh, it's acceptable, that's just the way that it is. But it's not. Because God's reality is the greatest reality. And as baptized believers, that's the reality we live in. We're called to live in that reality. Not one foot in there and then another foot in there. I've got my religious game face on on Sunday, but when I go home and I go to work, whoa! Got a mouth as sharp as a razor. I cut you with it. I criticize everybody and everyone for everything. Blame people. Try and wriggle out of my own failings by blaming the church. Friends, think on these things. If you find that you can't think on these things about your brothers and sisters, you're closer to Eliab than you are to David. But if you will give yourself to the hard task of learning to do this, to do it well, to look for the good, the pure, the commendable, the excellent, the praiseworthy, to find those things out in people, to speak those things out, to speak of God, to speak words that build up the community of the church, to speak words that don't hack down Christ's beloved bride, but honour her and beautify her. If you can do those things, then you will be well on your way to being a man or a woman after God's own heart. I commend that to you, friends. I urge you to it. You will be well on the way if you can do these things and you will not need to fear becoming an angry, cynical, suspicious and accusatory Eliab. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer for a moment? Oh God, we're undone. Just again, Lord, we're undone at the way the one young woman can stand and sing her heart out to you and it brings us all to our knees and softens our hearts and brings us into a fresh sense of your presence. We're undone, God, when we realize that, that we are. We, we are just all Eliab, really. We're all deeply flawed. God, we want to be like David. We want to be after your heart. We want to be quick to speak of you, quick to speak of the beauty of your church. We want to be affirming of your people, affirming of your purposes in your people. God, forgive us, please. Jesus, have mercy on us where we have criticized and allowed cynicism to have its sway in our thoughts. Forgive us, Jesus. Please keep us as yours. Lord, if our eyes have been open to you once and now they're growing dim, oh God, don't let them close completely. If we're on our way to hardening our hearts, Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you that you love us and you love us enough to speak 
tough words to us in your word. Thank you that your love is not the kind of love that tells people what they want to hear. Tells people that you're just great as you are. You're just great as an angry, cynical, suspicious person. No, you love to tell us because you want us to grow. You want us to be after your heart. You want a people who know you and follow you and love you. Win us all over again, we pray, Lord Jesus. May we be people who affirm you in your ways. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.